We have an anchor that keeps the soul steady. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. What do you see when you look at what the Bible has to say about Jesus? There are a lot of people that have drawn some conclusions about what they perceive to be the truth as it relates to Jesus. The only way that we can accurately see the Lord in all of His fullness is to look at what the Bible has to say about Him. And so today I want to call your attention to the Christ. And I want to talk a little bit about seeing Jesus. You know, the Hebrew writer in chapter 2 at verse 9, the passage again that was read a moment ago, said, but now we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. In Hebrews chapter 12, again, the writer encourages those of us who belong to the human family to focus our heart, our mind on the Christ. You remember he talked about laying aside every sin and the weight that so easily besets us, and then running with patience the Christian race. But he went on to say, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So what about Jesus? What do you see when you look at what the Bible has to say concerning the Christ? I want to maybe, in our study today, provide us with a portrait of the Christ as revealed in Scripture. So the first thing I want to talk about in our study today has to do with the virgin birth. Now oftentimes we talk about the significance of the resurrection, and we'll talk about that in a minute or two. And really Christianity stands or falls on the basis of whether or not the resurrection of Jesus was true. But what about His virgin birth? There are some who are skeptic, skeptical concerning the promise of a child being born to a virgin. And yet seven centuries before Jesus came to earth, the prophet foretold of the virgin birth. In chapter 7, verse 14, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet said, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel pointing there to the coming of the Messiah, the promised seed that had been referenced by Moses in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15, identified by the lawgiver in Deuteronomy chapter 18 as the prophet. So Isaiah, looking down into time, saw the day when the Lord Jesus would be born of the Virgin Mary. Now you remember in Psalm verse well, in Psalm 40, the psalmist in the long ago talked about a body being prepared for the Lord. The one we're talking about is the pre-existent Christ, the one who has always existed, who will always exist. So in Matthew chapter 1, 
Matthew provides us with a glimpse into the kingly genealogy of the Christ, the Son of God. Some 39 times in Matthew chapter 1, the word begot is found. For example, in verse 2, Matthew said that Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, and so on. But down in about verse 16, Matthew then said that Jacob begot Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus called Christ. Why that expression? Because the Lord Jesus Christ did not have an earthly father. You remember the record tells us that the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Joseph and Mary had been betrothed to one another. And Joseph, the Bible says, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. And the Bible says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she'll bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. For it is he that will save his people from their sins. And then listen to what Matthew says. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord through the prophet, saying, The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, being translated, God is with us. So what Matthew is telling us is that what the great prophet Isaiah said concerning the coming of the Christ, and his virgin birth came to pass. Matter of fact, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew says in chapter 2, as it was recorded or written in the prophets. Going all the way back to Micah chapter 5 at verse 2. And there Micah, in pinpointing the place of the birth of the Son of God, identified him as the one of whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting, from the days of eternity. So we're talking about the second member of the Godhead, clothed in human flesh, so that he might come to earth and taste death, as the writer said, for every man. So it's virgin birth. But then there's a second thought. And that has to do with his virtuous life. And when we talk about the life of Christ, to understand that the Bible emphatically says the Lord Jesus Christ did not commit sin. Now, the Lord Jesus was sinless, never sawed his lips with sin, never did anything bodily that would have identified him as a sinner. We have the testimony of the Savior, the testimony of the Scriptures, 
and the testimony of sinners. So what about that? You remember in John chapter 8 at verse 46, Jesus said to the Jews of His day, matter of fact, He asked them this question, Which of you convicts me of sin? Now, you know, had they been able to pin something on the Lord, and they tried, they over and over again did their best to ensnare Him, to entrap Him, to indict Him of sin. The fact of the matter is they couldn't do that. Why? Because He did not sin. And so you have the testimony of the Savior. But what about the Scriptures? When we look back and read the New Testament, was it not the Apostle Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Him who knew no sin, that's Jesus. The Lord Jesus did not commit sin, but rather He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible tells us, We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, you remember the writer there talks about how God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him through the Christ. And he said, talking about the priestly work of Christ, He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. Now listen to what he said. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So by implication, what the writer is saying is the Lord Jesus was a greater high priest than all those high priests that functioned under the Mosaic Dispensation. Why? Because unlike those high priests, he did not have to deal with sin in his own life. But rather, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for sin and then his priestly duties. So the Lord Jesus Christ, without sin, Peter, who spent considerable time in the presence of Jesus, said in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in His steps. Now note, in whom was no sin. Unequivocally, Peter, writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Jesus did not commit sin. But what about the testimony of sinners. I mentioned a moment ago, there were people in the first century, there were Jews who did everything within their power to destroy the work of the Christ. They wanted to soil His character. They sought to ensnare and destroy the good work that He came to do. And yet, for example, in Matthew chapter 27 and about verse 4, Judas Iscariot that had betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Do you remember what he said? I have sinned in that I have betrayed, listen to him, innocent blood. Pontius Pilate. His wife said to Pilate, 
have nothing to do with that just man. That's in about verse 18. Pilate himself. Three times in John chapter 18, verse 38, John chapter 19, verse 4, John chapter 19, verse 6. Three times, here's what Pilate said. I find no fault in him. Now, had they been able to pin something against him to soil his character, to undermine his work, they would have done so, wouldn't they? The fact of the matter is, they were unable to do that. And you remember when Jesus died upon Calvary? There was a Roman centurion that stood to the side. When he observed the events that took place, here's what he said, Truly this was a righteous man. In other words, this is the Son of God. So my question to you, when you look at the virtuous life of Christ, is it not the case that when Peter said that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in His steps? Isn't it the case that we follow in the footsteps of Him who was sinless? He was God's perfect offering for sin. As John the Baptist said, and said it well, he saw the Lord Jesus coming on one occasion and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Now there's a third thing I want to share with you. And that has to do with his vicarious death. Why did Jesus come to earth? I mean, what was the purpose behind the Lord Jesus coming to planet earth? Well, God recognized that man needed to be redeemed. And God had a plan in place before He ever laid the foundation of the world. Before He ever created man in His own image and likeness, God had already been to the chalkboard and drawn up a plan so that we might have the opportunity to be a part of His family. And so the Bible over and over again speaks of the purpose for the Christ coming into the world. Go back again and look at what the angel said to Joseph in that dream. He said, it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to bear our sins. It cost him his body, didn't it? Peter said he bore our sins in his body on the cross. This morning as we partook of the Lord's Supper, the thought hit me as we were partaking together. As I happened to look upon the screen and see that picture of Jesus hanging on Calvary for us, that in some sense of the word, that is a picture of us standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Let me tell you why He went to the cross. He went to the cross because man had a sin problem, and that includes us. And Paul wrote, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, The soul that sins, it will surely die. And Paul said the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. The gift of God, however, is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus. Jesus came to redeem you. By what means? By His blood. 
When we partake of the fruit of the vine on the first day of the week, we are bringing to mind divine blood. Blood that was shed in our stead, as Peter said, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. There again, the sinless nature of the Son of God. The fact that Jesus shed His blood in death. Why? So that we might enjoy forgiveness. Remember what John said? Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, unto Him who loved us and washed us in His blood for our sins. Jesus shed His blood for you, for me. But then there's another thought. What about the people for whom Jesus died on the cross? What kind of people did Jesus die for? The Hebrew writer said He tasted death for every man. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that Jesus died for, listen to Him, the ungodly. In verse 8, Jesus died for sinners. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus died for the lost. That encompasses the entirety of the human family. You remember what Jesus asked? I cited a moment ago, John 8, verse 46, Which of you convicts me of sin? Let me ask this question. Which of us can stand up and ask that question to our fellow man? I can't stand up and say to somebody, which of you convicts me of sin? Why? Because sin has been a problem in my life as it has all of us who are here today. But through the shed blood of Jesus, I can enjoy reconciliation and redemption. Do you remember Paul said that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross? The cross is where man and the Savior meet, isn't it? Paul said there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now think about it. Jesus serves as our mediator. He serves as our intercessor, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8. He said that Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and He makes intercession for us. That's those of us who belong to the human family. He also serves as our advocate, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So we got a mediator, an intercessor, and an advocate. The Lord Jesus is the only one qualified to stand between two parties. That is, He had the ability to stand between God and the human family. And it's only through Jesus that the two parties can come to conciliation. So when Jesus died on Calvary, He opened the door for us to be saved. Now, there's a fourth thing I want to share with you. It has to do with His victorious resurrection. I mentioned a moment ago the fact that Christianity stands or falls on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. By what means? By the resurrection from the dead. So what about the power of the resurrection? Well, let me just ask this. What kind of proof do we have? That Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. 
Well, think about those who were considered his enemies in the first century. Had they been able to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, don't you think they would have done that? Don't you think that if they had the ability to have done so, they would have produced a body? And had they produced a body, what would that say about Christianity? Dead in its tracks. But they couldn't do that, could they? So number one, when you think about the proof of the resurrection, you've got to deal with an empty tomb. The angel said to the women who came to the tomb early on the first day of the week, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. Why? He's risen. Now go back and look at the record. You've got an empty tomb and then you have eyewitness testimony in a court of law. Let's just say that we're going to stand before the judge and we have been indicted. We've been charged with certain crimes. And so, our attorney begins to parade through the courtroom eyewitness testimony, verifying that we did not do what we've been charged with. Would that testimony stand up in a court of law? Yes, it would, for good or bad. So you go back and you look at the record, and you've got the Lord Jesus presenting Himself, himself alive by many infallible or unmistakable proofs. And Luke said he was seen by them over a period of 40 days. Well, what about those people? Who were they? Well, I can read about women by the name of Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it was said that Jesus first appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Then he was seen by James and by all the apostles. And then Paul said, and last of all, he was seen by me. It's one born out of due time. So they corroborated what the Bible has to say. I mean, go back and look at all those eyewitnesses. And what they're saying is, we saw the Lord. We saw the risen Lord. So when the church began on Pentecost Day, and Peter preaches the gospel to those people who are present, doesn't he emphasize the resurrected Christ? That his soul would not be left in Hades, neither would his flesh see corruption. The Lord Jesus was raised from the dead to sit at the right hand of the Father upon a spiritual throne. That throne is David's throne. He now sits at the right hand of God where he welds all authority. So, the proof, there's proof. Look, we're not putting our faith in some type of myth. That's not fiction. No, this is documented time and again in the Scriptures. The early church, once the church began, what was at the heart of their preaching and teaching? Do you remember? When Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, recorded by Luke, one of the things that mystified the people that were present in that city had to do with the resurrection. What's that all about? So, the proof of the resurrection, but then what about the power? How does that affect me? How does it affect you? 
Is it imperative that Jesus rose from the dead for us? Well, Peter tells us in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we have a living hope. And the basis of that living hope, it is based upon the resurrection of Jesus. And he said we have an inheritance. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And so the body may one day be placed in the tomb. But that body, that same body placed in the grave will one day rise again. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He is the first fruits, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Lord Jesus Christ died. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He died according to the Scriptures. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So listen to what Jesus said to those who were in Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. And as we think about living in this world, it's one thing to live, it's another thing to die. And we will all taste death at some point in time. Paul talks about the sting of death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So what about when I come to the end of my life? Here's what I like to think about. I hear Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and the life, John 11. I think about Jesus saying in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, past tense. But I am alive forevermore, present tense. And he said, I have the keys of Hades and death. Lord Jesus Christ has the keys to the cemetery. And you might have a mama or a daddy resting in the cemetery as we speak. Might be the case that your grandparents, great-grandparents, have long since departed this world. And I can tell you this, that body that resides under the sod in the cemetery will one day rise again. Jesus said, the hour's coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Can you imagine what that'll be like? Paul said, Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. One day we will rise to meet the Lord. And hopefully and prayerfully, we'll go home to be with Him throughout all of eternity. Well, who's going to heaven? Those who followed His will. Those who have lived for Him. We live for Jesus today so that one day we can live with Jesus. So what do you see when you read the Scriptures about Jesus? What do you see? You see somebody that tasted death, not just for every man, but tasted death for you. That's personal. That's profound. But I want to ask you this question. Remember Pontius Pilate that said three times, I find no fault in him? Pilate asked those who were present at the trial of Jesus, what then shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? You've got to answer that question. You've got to decide what you're going to do with Jesus who's called the Christ. Are you going to, are you going to, are you going to be willing to submit to Him, to honor His Word. You know, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Have you come to the conviction that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God? And based upon that rock-solid conviction, 
you're willing to walk away from a life of sin. To no longer live for self. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Are you willing to do that today? Once you've repented of your sins, are you willing to confess Him before others? And then be immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away. Look, salvation is in Christ. And those who are in Christ have the promise of life eternal. Have you been, have you been immersed, baptized, so that all your sins can be washed away? If not, why not do it today? If you're here today and maybe your life's not what it ought to be and you need to make some changes in your life, could I encourage you to do that? Now look, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And the assurance is God will abundantly pardon 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We are here today to remember Jesus, the one who tasted death for us, and to live for Him day in and day out. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love